any little thing I think I think that he be doing cause it doesn't matter cause I'm gonna folks thanks for joining us we are here with another gd podcast i'm your host guy demarco and this week we have an awesome guest we have mr ryan mcmillan ryan how are you tonight i'm doing good how are you guy i am fantastic so i wanted to have you on for a myriad of reasons not only because you're a leader in innovative technology in the firearms market in my opinion but two, you are a success story in the eyes of a military member that has got out, transitioned successfully, and then is running two successful businesses. So I wanted to capture your story and get that out there to other guys and gals, service members that are looking at either retiring or you know, getting out halfway or doing their four-year service commitment and then and getting out and moving on to bigger and better things. I know that it is um, hard to transition. I haven't gone through it myself. However, all of the podcasts that I listen to, if it has somebody that's had military background or military experience where they did four, 10, or 20 years, they I wouldn't say have a problem transitioning, but it's not what they expected or they found one particular aspect of it more difficult than the next. Like we all get up every day, we PT, we put on a uniform, we go do our job. When we get out, that may not necessarily be the standard going from strict military life to the civilian sector. So I kind of wanted to get your successful transition uh, that story told because I haven't heard it yet. And frankly, I'm interested. So who is Ryan McMillan? Well, um, I guess the start would probably be and my, my first professional career job would be as a, as a SEAL. I joined the Navy in 2000, right before 9-11, about a year before 9-11 and in peacetime. And then I was uh, in buds when 9-11 happened and things were quite wild at the time. And so that was an interesting time. And then um, uh, made it through buds by 2002 um, and off to SEAL Team 2 and did a, did a couple tours in Iraq and uh, spent a lot of time in a lot of different places, but my primary tours were in Iraq. <clears throat> and then I uh, got out at the end of 2006. And, um, you know, my uh, family has been in the industry for quite some time. So my transition was maybe a little bit different. Maybe you could say easier in a lot of ways. You might say harder too, um, going to work for a family business. Um, but that's what I did is what I went to work for uh, the family um, and quickly realized that uh, I wanted to really do my own thing and, and run my own business. Um, uh, you know, I think military people typically, if you're, if you're, if you have enough, um, 
desire to join the military, you have desire to do something with your life. That's for sure. And so you, you aren't just, you're not satisfied with just kind of sitting around and, and kind of waiting for things to come to you. You want to go get things done. And that's kind of where I was at. And so I spent, I spent about eight years or so at McMillan, last seven years at McMillan until finally I just, I had to kind of move on. Um, and it was, it really came down to just, uh, uh, you know, different times in people's lives where, you know, my dad was wanted one thing and I wanted another that was just not setting well with me being able to pursue the things that I wanted to. So I just, I took a different path. I, I uh, opened up Graybo and then recently just opened up Reactor, which is a technology company in a firearm space and uh, been extremely happy ever since. Um, so that's, that's the overview, I guess, of me. All right. Now I'm going to, I'm going to take a playbook out of Mike Glover's playbook here, which uh, if you guys that are listening, if you haven't checked out Fieldcraft survival, I highly recommend it there in the, survival space, preparedness space, firearm space, rock crawling space, you name it. They, they're kind of in the space. Um, they like to do the lightning round. So when you're home, what is your typical morning like? Well, I get up usually it depends in the winter. I get up about six in the summer and up around five fifteen or five twenty. Um, I get up, uh, and, uh, my routines do change. Uh, one of my routines would be get up in the morning and work out first thing in the morning. Uh, I get to work and then I just work. Um, a lot of people like to have schedules set out throughout the day. I find that that ends up being a lot of wasted time for me, let's say on Sunday, um, when, uh, I could be spending time with my family and I try to plan out my schedule for the whole week. It just doesn't work well because things change so much as a business owner throughout the week that it's really hard to do that. So, um, I own owning multiple businesses. I, I, I don't plan my week or I don't really even plan my day. I get to uh, work and I just basically, um, try to continue to make advances in the company every single day. And there are times I use um, a software that helps me always look forward and, uh, always try to be organized. Um, so there is some organization to it, but, I honestly don't have a very strict routine when it comes to being at work. Um, I work a lot. Um, so I'm in, I'm in the shop usually from about seven to six. So, um, on, on a daily basis. And then I come home and I eat dinner with my family and spend time with my kids and, uh, go to bed. Really. It's not, it's not that complicated. I, honestly, I don't have something special to enlighten you guys with. You know, I try to get my workout in my hobby is my work. My other hobby is my family, and that's what I enjoy doing. Uh, and I and I just make sure that, you know, I'm I'm a big big um, proponent of responsibility and making sure that uh, I, I I have four kids. You know, I have four kids, so I want to make sure that they're taken care of and they have the things that they need. And my wife has the things that she needs. And and I'm I I just think it's important to be responsible. And uh, part of being responsible is enjoying your work. So you go there every day with a good attitude and, and trying to make something of yourself. And, and then also that trickles into your, your family life and everything else. Sweet. Are you a traditional brew coffee guy, a K cup guy, or like a French drip or overpour? What's your, what's your coffee, coffee well, fix? Traditional brew. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you get spoiled a little bit, like it's, 
it's like everything is the, the more you taste the better stuff, the more you, you have to have that and you can't have other things. So I'm a traditional brew guy, but I also, I also will do some espresso stuff in the afternoon. I don't like drip coffee except in the morning. I do like drip coffee, but that's only for the morning after my morning coffee. I'm, I'm pretty much done with, with that. And if I want something later in the afternoon, I might have an espresso. Okay. What's your everyday carry? Uh, a Springfield XD. Okay. What is <clears throat> like, when you think back to your Navy time, what is like first snapshot? What is your most vivid memory of your Navy service? Um, you know, there's, there's a few, but most of them really have to center around buds and seal training and being at seal training and being, you know, on that beach, being on that O course, um, being on the compound, there's just something, you know, when you're so young and you just haven't experienced anything close to that degree, you know, those, those memories are just implanted into your mind forever. It's so much, there's so much going on and not just that it's so intense, but it's also, there's such important and rich history that you've learned about and, uh, for your, your life. And then you're there and you're like, wow, you know, kind of in awe. Um, so maybe my Navy history really, as I look back on it, the most important thing, the most memorable thing, the most impactful thing was SEAL training. So, and, 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 and the compound and, and all the, all the days of being wet and sandy and in the pit and being freezing cold and everything that comes with the misery. Yes, they're, they're, I've been to San Diego and I've been to like Gator Beach and Coronado, not in your type of, of, of trip of being there. But I remember being there in the summer and the water was still really cold. Yeah, we learned that later that the water stays pretty cold in the, in the summertime. I guess it comes down from Alaska off the glaciers or something. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what I heard one day, and I'm just kind of repeating that. But uh, it does stay cold for sure. In the summertime, the water is still really cold. And it, it's weird because it, it does get colder in the winter, but not drastically colder in the winter. So the water tends to stay within about, a, I think it's a 10-degree range. Um, maybe it gets a little bit more than that, but in the extremes, it's about a 10 degree range. That's if it's not Gulf of Mexico, warm 80 degree water, I'm not getting in it. So <laughs> there, they should just move buds down here to Florida and you guys would be, the attrition yeah, would probably go up, right? Plenty of uh, students, right. To uh, get, to make it through. To exactly. <laughs> um, so Let's let's focus on your military service. You said you joined in 2000, so that was obviously a peacetime era uh, military garrison military. What was your inspiration for joining the military? Um, you know, I, I I just wanted to do something difficult. I mean, it really, is that simple? There's a couple things. I mean, I you know, you watch TV. A couple things kind of came together. You know, I watched some programs that you know kind of led me in that direction. But you, you also have to have a real desire, a real like a like something in you that really says, "Okay, I want to go to training work." And it's just you know, I, I've been an athlete in high school, and, but I really never in, in athletics, even though I was relatively good. I just decided I, I don't know. I just was I just moved on from it, and um, 
I wanted to do something hard. I wanted to make something of myself. I wanted to, I don't know. I just remember when I was young, I'd watch, watch some shows, TV shows. And I, I just remember thinking, I want to do that. And there was a point in time where I, I would see other people watch TV shows and they're all into the show. And I'm like, don't you just want to go do that? Like, no, they're happy sitting there watching the show. I was always the person who was like, I want to do that. And that's, you know, that's really what drove a lot of, of kind of why I ended up going into it because there's a lot of shows on TV that you know, make, make seals out of military people or government people out to be, you know, heroes. And that's a, it's an attractive thing for young men. And so I don't, I don't regret it at all by any means. I think it was the best decision I, I made, but it wasn't some heroic story of, of me, you know, uh, my, my trek into the, into the Navy, into the SEAL teams. It was, you know, good probably marketing by the Navy to get their brand out there through television <laughs> and me just getting hooked in. So, okay. So I guess then why, why the Navy specifically were the Marine recruiters at lunch that day, or did you just watch Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen and say, that's it. Like everybody else did. Cause no. there wasn't a lot of material readily available for yeah special ops, whether it be army, Navy, air force, whatever it may be. So really what you had was movies and a very few books like the Marcinko book and, and things like that back in the day. It was a combination. It was, um, really it was like shows like the X-Files, right. Where it had all these government agents. And then I watched the, the movie, the rock. I don't know if you remember that with, uh, yep with uh, Nicholas Cage and, and there was a couple other movies that kind of, that were kind of hovering around this government, you know, uh, military thing. And then, you know, I started doing my research and it turns out that my family has a, a history of, of working with this Navy SEALs and that kind of came up and that kind of helped persuade me into what I really wanted to do. Originally, when I decided I wanted to go in the military, I was, I was just looking like I was like, what does a pilot do? And I got a little bit serious about that and realized it was a 10 year commitment. I'm like, I don't really know if I want to commit 10 years. I don't really know. Um, and then I was, I just, when I looked at the seals, I was really intrigued, but they were the tip of the spear. And I realized that the commitment. There isn't well, let's just do it. grew up wanting to be seals and um that was not necessarily my story it was i decided at some point in time uh that i that i was interested i then said okay i know what i want to do and within a couple of weeks i was at the recruiter and then within three months after that i was in boot camp okay so basically your your family was i don't want to say you you say kind of like working with the seals is that through mcmillan fiberglass you know was that through, through the stock portion of it and like providing military with stocks and having contract military contracts and things like that yeah that's how it all started but my grandfather um he was kind of the actual pi a pioneer in the industry back in the late 70s well even early 70s um he was the inventor of the fiberglass stock and he had he was very well respected by the military for his shooting capabilities he grew up shooting and grew and, and and knew a lot about accurate shooting back when the military was it wasn't a thing back then. I mean, the first sniper rifle, the first true sniper rifle was the M40A1 by the Marine Corps. There was really no dedicated sniper rifle before that. There were 
more accurate rifles, but there was no sniper rifle before that. And my grandfather was the first one to help uh, the Marines and he had, you know, McMillan stock on there, but he also contracted to help build the thing because they trusted him. Um, once he did that, it, it, the SEALs caught on and, and Marcinko and that group, that, that initial kind of uh, plank owner, SEAL Team 6 plank owner group, um, and he started building guns for them um, back when they were kind of off the radar, you know, and, and they could kind of just go get the things they needed to, to accomplish their mission. Um, he would build the guns. He got into it. Uh, who years older than influenced directly that and ended up um, joining Buds 13 years before me. Um, he didn't make it through, but him and I were became really close over my younger years. And he he was a big influence and helped me train to become a SEAL. So I did have, in, definitely had influence. Um, and it started with my grandfather and the McMillan brand and his ability to be able to, uh, um, or, or his skill at making long range rifles and, and the trust that the military had in him. Um, but that trickled all the way to me. Okay. So talking specifically about the seals what was your uh buds class number well i started 37 with 236 and then i graduated with 238 so 236 and 238 you're either my connection's bad or your connection might be a little little weird maybe i should turn my video off if i turn my video off that might help okay yeah let's try that okay okay let's so so you started with two, three, six and graduated with two, three, eight. So I know that buds is obviously physically difficult and it's also mentally difficult. Did you, was it like a med roll or was like, did you not make a swim or? I failed pull comp the first time. Fair enough. Nobody, nobody likes getting drowned. That that to me ended up being the, the most difficult evolution. Um, for me and buds. And I think probably for a lot of people. Um, and you know, the thing about pool comp, it's, it's interesting. A lot of it depends on the instructor you get. And, uh, so it was, it was, a, it was a sad day because the last, you get four attempts and, uh, my last attempt, I was underwater for 22 minutes and I felt like I, I passed and I did everything that was asked of me. And the instructor, uh, failed me on some technicality. So that set me back. And then uh, I had to go back to first phase um, after that and go through again. I did, I, it's, it was post Hell Week first phase. So I only did Hell Week once, but um, I went back to first phase and then I had to redo the whole thing again. And, and, and then the second time I passed. It's because you had so much practice at it. That's right. I know. <laughs> See, I say, so I say the same thing. So my audience kind of knows, but I'm a, I'm an EOD tech. I'm an EOD instructor down here at the schoolhouse in Florida. And during my introduction every week or with every class or every time I go teach a, teach a topic or a pit, I always tell them like, Hey, I came through in 2008. I failed out in 2009. I came back in 2011. I graduated in 2012. So Mm -hmm. like, I know that the school is hard. It's meant to be hard because it's a hard job, right? Like the reason why, we hold such a high standard or the reason why we, we harp on the small details is it's the small details that really matter. Like 
We don't want people that are just trying to rush through it. We don't want people that are trying to hide something. We don't, we want people that are going to be able to do the job under stress and, and be able to make it. Cause I, I take my job as making sure that all of my students don't go on our EOD Memorial wall. That's right at the front of our school that we drive by every day. Yeah. Right. So when people are like, Oh, Sergeant Marco's mean, be like, am I mean or am I trying to hold you to a high standard? So um, I, when I came through, I was like, man, I should have been like that instructor kind of just had it out for me or whatever. And I'm not saying that's what you're saying about your instructor cadre, but sometimes I like to look at it like that and be like, Hey, like I didn't grasp a fundamental xyz or this was the small technicality and then you know i research it later and it turns up hey somebody is on the wall because i made this you know i made the same mistake that they did and it's probably better that you know i go elsewhere and and do something else for a little while and and try my hand at it later which has ended up what happening and it's worked out for me i've been in eod tech for nine years now so yeah maybe it paid off i don't I hope it did. I mean, I'm still here. So, um, so you said that pool pool comp was, was your difficult point. Rockets and projos was my difficult point. Um, and then I went back and taught rockets and projos. I think it's a cruel irony. Um, how many, how many deployments did you do? I did two deployments. Okay. And you said those were both to Iraq. Yeah. The primary deployments were to Iraq. Um, but obviously a bunch of little trips, bunch of little trips, um, spent time in a lot of different places in the Middle East. I even went to South America, I went to Korea. Um, I mean, when you talk about big deployments, major deployments too, but we, we were all over the place. So, okay. And I know that like every, like they've got, you know, your, your, your assault team, your snipers, your, you know, demo guys, your medics, what do you, commos, did you have a specific skill set that you were on the team? Yeah, my first, um, my first platoon, I was an assaulter. Okay. Uh, Well, I was, I was on that group and I'm glad I ended up there. Uh, Even though I really wanted to be a sniper, I'm glad I ended up there because that's where most of the work was done in our first deployment. Um, we were we were in Missoula and uh, we were kind of like the SWAT team of Missoula, I guess we kind of labeled ourselves. So it was all close quarter combat stuff. So that was good. And my second deployment, I was part of the sniper team. Uh, and, you know, that's so I did both. OK. Um, and you said you were team two and that's out or that's out of where? Virginia. OK, Marvel. Virginia. OK. Um recently um i obviously follow you on on the social medias and i think your posts are money um but you posted one more recently that was involving uh a iraq deployment and somebody that you met while you were or you got to meet or ended up running for protect running protection for that individual on on that deployment and that was um President Bush. Uh, can you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah. Um, we were in Iraq, uh, my second deployment, and we were just doing ops. And um, 
there was a, we got a call. I mean, I was a E6 at the time, so I wasn't really, I mean, I didn't get the call, right? Some of, some of our leadership got the call and we were told that he was making a planned visit to Islamabad, Pakistan. And, and presidents don't typically make planned visits uh, to war zones. They make them kind of under the, the darkness of night type of deal. And then he shows up and you don't even know he's there until he's gone, right? So that's how it normally works. Normally, yes. But uh, for some reason, President Bush wanted to plan this. I don't know if it was like a, 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 a show of power. I'm not 100% sure, but he planned it. And so the problem was that the Secret Service didn't typically, they didn't have enough resources and they weren't skilled enough in that region. A number of things that we were told, whether how much they're true, I don't know, we we're just door kickers. Um, but uh, um, we needed to support uh, Secret Service because it was such a high profile deal. So we flew over to Islamabad um, and stayed there for about a week uh, before he got there, surveying the area, making sure that we were basically like the advance party. Right, the uh, Advon team. Yep. And, um, and so we surveyed the area, met with the locals, met with the people at the, um, at the um, uh, embassy there, and then um, were part of his arrival when he, when he came in. So that was really cool to see how that works and to see Air Force One and all the other different aircraft that came in and, and be able to, you know, to be a part of the Secret Service at that point to protect him. And then over uh, that night, he went to his hotel. We went back to ours and the Secret Sur Service guarded him that night. But the whole next day was the big deal. He was out publicly um, in, I don't know, some uh, downtown Islamabad in some park where he was meeting and greeting a lot of like dignitaries and stuff. So our job was basically to have to be an air asset um, and to be a sniper overwatch if anything went bad. Uh, we had our sniper guns on us and then we had a fast rope attached to the uh, to the helo so that if anything went down, we could fast rope in and get them out of there. And and of course, nothing happened. It was a great time. And uh, at the end, he wanted, you know, we didn't, he actually contacted us or one of his, um, one of his, uh, I don't know, people contacted us. <laughs> yeah, contacted us and said, hey, we'd, he'd really like to meet you. And him and his dad had a long history with SEAL team. So, um, we, uh, we kind of, we kind of, um, landed the plane, went over or landed the helicopter or went over there and stood around, stood there for a little bit. And he came driving up in his, uh, up armored limo and he got the out beast. of the car. And, what's that? The beast. Yeah. He got out of his limo and he, he kind of is looking around and he sees us and he waves and he goes kicking ass for America. <laughs> and, uh, it was just such a cool moment because, you know, it was the fact that he used the word ass was cool because, you know, it was a president of the United States and you're, you're a young kid just trying to do your job. And he's like, he's this informal guy being like, dude, you guys are awesome. And, and we're just standing there like, this is our job. This is like the highlight of our lives, getting to meet the president of the United States. And he's just like, just chill and cool. It was such a cool experience to uh, be able to meet him. And, um, and he, he, he did go out of his way to make sure that he, he said hi to us and he, he took care of us. So I was really, uh, I was really impressed by that for sure. And it left a, left a lasting mark on me. That's awesome. So at, uh, like as an EOD tech, we get tasked to um, the secret service quite often. And I've had two really cool opportunities. I was actually on the white house detail for 35 days. And then I was assigned to Trump tower for 25 days, two different times, but I pulled VIPs all over the, uh, the Southern California, mainly LAX, uh, airport and done some Hollywood Hills and stuff like that. But I've 
out of all the missions that I've ran and all the stuff that I've been tasked with the secret service, I've never actually met the president. I've only like seen him walk on and off of air force one. Even when I was at the white house for a month, I never saw him. Um, anything else like that. So to just be flying around in a helo, getting the, getting the call to land and then get to meet the president. That's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think just because of this, the circumstance, it was such a high profile op and we came over, we flew over from our, I think all that combined, it, it was just him, him, his way of saying thanks because it was a, it was such a, I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, there was a, it was, it was, it was a dangerous op because he was a high profile target. We, he pulled us away from our, our normal mission. And so he just wanted to say thanks. And that was a really cool opportunity for us to do that. So. That's awesome. Are there any other um, memorable times from your deployment that you would care to share? Any, any cool, uh, cool missions or anything like that, that you're able to talk about? Well, um, we had, we did a lot of ops, um, none that were, you know, none that were, that really stand out, but we did a lot of ops in Missoula when we first got there in 2004, it was pretty, it was pretty, um, we called it the wild west really. Yeah. It was uh, spicy. It was spicy. It, and we got there in the month that I think still to this day was the deadliest month in Iraq on history. So it was April, 2004. Um, and it was a, it was, you know, I would say the first day I was there was probably just it was such an eye opener, even after going through all the training and buds and working up uh, at the teams for a year and a half um, before you deploy, you just have no idea what it's like when real bullets are flying at you. And, you know, we get off the plane in Missoula, we land in this little, you know, airport. I mean, I could, I'm, I'm surprised it even, you know, uh, was it able to help uh, have us land on our C-130s. I think we had a, I knew we took a C-17 over, but then I think we changed planes to a C-130. But anyway, we got out and within, I mean, while the bay door is opening, there's just, there's literally rocket fire going on. And uh, uh, our, our, we, we, we have a, a couple guys from our team who, had, who were advanced. They went over a couple weeks early just to scout the area out, make sure that we, you know, when we arrived, we arrived properly. And uh, so literally just, I mean, it was crazy. You know, you just, it's like, you know, you, you go from being in this very controlled environment um, to now you're at war. I mean, it's, it was a really interesting thing. And then, so, you know, obviously the barrage of rockets stops and then we, we start to, you know, get our stuff together and unpack. And as we're uh, listening to some of the radios, I, I, I listened that night to, uh, I believe it was a Sergeant major, but an, an army Sergeant major die on the radio. Um, and that was really really hit me hard because the first night I was there, <laughs> we're already getting shot at with rockets and I literally listened to do, a dude die on the radio. So that get, that starts to get you, I'm, you know, keep in mind I'm 23 years old or 24 years old. I'm still a young guy. And then um, we go to bed that night and the next morning we wake up, we, we have to stand watch, you know, on, on our, on our area. Cause it's so, it's, it's still pretty primitive. We don't really have a lot of assets. So we're standing our own watch on our entry and uh, a, a mortar comes in and me and another guy um, that were standing there and a mortar comes in and hits within, you know, I would, I don't know, it's hard to say 15 feet from us or so, but it was a dud. And uh, you know, so the first 24 hours was a really interesting time. And um, 
you know, it's, it's like, welcome to war, you know? Yeah. It's like, is this going to be what it's like for the next, you, you know, the next 120, 180 yeah. days? Like, so, it, you know, it did think, I wouldn't say things calmed down. I mean, those were all unique instances, but they, you know, things were, were busy in April, 2000 or in April, 2004, things were, things were crazy. And so um, we at, went out and did a ton of missions, a ton of ops on, on, on in Missoula there. And then uh, we got called over to do uh uh, to Baghdad to do some security detail for Prime Minister Alawi because the first Prime Minister that actually um, was was appointed, um, which was I think in June or July maybe or maybe even May of 2004, was killed within two days because he had his own security detail. So they were like the Americans were like we can't have that. We're trying to transition power back and we can't have all the prime ministers who come in like literally murdered that day. So they yeah on there. Anyways, we had we had fun. Um, uh, you know, we, we would rather kick indoors much more than protect, uh, protect the dignitary, but, uh, we did what we had to do. And, um, you know, so, um, we, you know, I, like I said, a lot of the, there was nothing that really stood out. There was a lot of ops that we did that were fun. Um, um, and they all ended up mostly the same way go in, get the bad guys, take them out. And, um, and so then we ended that deployment, went on the second deployment, a lot of the same stuff we did on the second deployment. So, where was your your first one was to Missoula? Where was your second deployment to? Baghdad. We were Baghdad. In the, okay. We were in the green zone there. I think they changed that to the international zone later, but um, um, that's where we were primarily uh, out of Baghdad the second time. Okay. And uh, your second trip to Baghdad was what year? Because uh, I know you guys have a pretty lengthy lengthy workup, but. Yeah, they shortened our workup uh, because normally our workup's a year and a half plus a six-month deployment. So it's a really a two-year cycle, but they shortened it because we had just gone to war. So we went, our first uh, our first workup was a year and a half with a six-month deployment, but my second workup was because, uh, was only a year long. So we ended up back in Iraq um, in late 2005 and, uh, and through, to, through, through about April 2006. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing some of that. Sometimes it's, um, it's a difficult piece to go back and, and to tell some of those stories. So thank you. Um, now you got, you said you, uh, did six years, so you probably got out shortly after that second deployment. Yeah, I did. Technically, I think six years and five months or something. So yeah, I got after that second deployment. Um, you know, the the basically what happens is you you reenlist and your reenlistment options are really like four, five, and six years. So you know, at 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 the time that I was going to get out, I was pushing seven years, and even a four year reenlistment that would put me at a, close to eleven. You know, and that that kind of hump is that 10 year hump and they do this on purpose, I'm sure, but that, yep, that the 10 year hump, 10 year hump, right. If you, if you make it past 10 years, you're pretty much in. So what, what, what you end up realizing is that if you reenlist that first time you're in for life, it's pretty much what it comes down to because you're, you're now in over 10 and most likely you're not going to get out because now you're looking at, you know, you get your retirement benefits and stuff. And so, you know, about half of us that, uh, that did our first two deployments from, you know, that were from the same bugs class, <clears throat> about half of us left and about half stayed, um, from what I can remember. And, um, yeah, it was just a decision I made. I, you know, like I said, in the beginning, I wanted, I, I really didn't want to commit 
I, I knew I didn't want to commit 20 years and, or a ton of time. I didn't know um, if I, it, you know, if I wanted to stay 20 years, I got in, I loved it. Um, I would have done that. But uh, it turns out that as much as I love the SEAL teams, as much as I love doing the job, um, you know, you're still in the military. And the military, um, you know, your life is not your own. And if you're okay with that, then you are a great fit for the military. But if you're, if you're not, um, that's what really ended up getting to me was that I had no freedom. And um, I think my personality just needs more freedom. That's why I became an entrepreneur is because it maximizes my freedom, my ability to do the things that I want to do in life. And um, I knew that the SEAL teams was a great opportunity for me, but it wasn't what I wanted to be, wasn't what... It wasn't everything I wanted to be. It was just a piece of what I wanted to do. And so I just felt like it was time to move on and, and try some other things. So that's what happened. Okay. So with the transition, um, getting out. Now, you did six six and a half years, we'll call it. Getting out, What what was that process? Now, this is obviously uh, mid to late Oh six, um, where this is, you know, a year, year and a half before the surge in, in Iraq, what was getting out like that? Like, was it just like, you know, do your, you do your medical appointments, do your, your out processing paperwork and then see you later was it a lengthy process? process? Were there any transition programs? Yeah, there was a program. I want to say it was called TAPS, but maybe it wasn't. I think it was. But anyway, it was a, it was just a program that a class that you had to go to before you got out to help you transition. And um, it, it didn't have any lasting effect on me. I knew what I was going to do. And um, as far as getting out, you know, obviously, um, you know, we were, the SEAL teams doesn't like to lose anybody because after you've been trained up and you've proven yourself that you're, 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 you're a good SEAL, it's really, it's really hard for the Navy to lose good SEALs because they're really hard to get to that point, right? It takes yeah, it costs millions and millions of dollars to train you. So they try to keep you in and, and we had our master chief who I still talk to this day is a great guy. I had him, um, you know, he, he came and talked to me and um, told me, you know, try to convince us to stay in. And at that time, it was a weird time. You may not remember, but it, what everybody felt like around, around 2006, mid 2006 was that the war was coming to an end. That was, that was the sense we had gone to war. We had kicked some butt and my sec, I, their first deployment, there was a lot of work. We did a ton of work. We, and we went and we went in hard and fast and got the job done. 2006, we saw a huge decline in operations. Part of that was because the government started getting involved in regulating what we could do. And I want to get into that right now because that's a whole other story. But they yeah, did the handcuffs came out and they went on you guys instead of the other dudes. Got it. <laughs> and so and so um we all kind of were like, well we're getting handcuffed and it looks like the war is kind of uh, slowing down. And so we're like now I mean we shoot, I was in six and a half years and I got to do all this really cool stuff where, you know, some SEALs in the past spend 20 years, 25 years and never get to go to war. We felt pretty lucky. And um, so anyway, we just decided that that was the right time. Well, 
Obviously, little did we know that in 2007, the surge would happen in 2011. Uh, Osama bin Laden would get killed by the SEAL team. So it was definitely not over. But that when we got out, that was the sense that was what was happening at that time. So um, that's why I think a bunch of us and a bunch of guys who ended up staying in really considered getting out because we saw what what war deployment was like on our first deployment. And then we saw how the government could handcuff you on the second deployment. And uh, people were really pissed. People were really, really pissed. I, yeah. yes. Yeah. So it, there was a lot of ugly sentiment. Um, you know, there was also back in my day, I don't know if it's still how prevalent it is, but, you know, Blackwater was a big deal back then. And yep. guys were getting out and going to Blackwater and making 1500 bucks a day. And, you know, SEALs who were highly trained and specialized weren't making a quarter of that money. And, and so SEAL teams were losing, uh, losing um, people to Blackwater. And then, they, and, the, and the Navy said, well, we're going to start increasing their pay, giving them bonuses. And they, they only did it for a certain percent. So there was, a lot of, there was a lot of politics that went on that kind of drove people. It was frustrating, you know. And I look back at it. I don't think anybody's at fault or anything. It's just the nature of the beast. But um, that, that, that had a lot to do with a lot of people getting out around that time. Okay. So believe it or not, they still have TAPS, the Transition Assistance Program. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I hear it's changed a lot. They actually like help write a resume and like take the the schooling and the the experience that you have in the military for say somebody at the the four, six, you know, 15 getting medically retired or something like that, or 20 year mark how to write a, instead of like an annual performance report, write an actual job resume to show the skills and experience that you have. Like if you're a supply sergeant, you should be pretty familiar with like the new hot term would be, you know, supply chain management. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're slinging airplane parts all day long, like, and you're doing the turn in and export and transfer, you probably know how to run, you know, a complicated shipping system. So it does help with that. And it does help, you know, lend some information about, you know, making sure you take care of your VA appointments and stay on top of all that stuff. Um, did you have the, I know that tuition assistance was available um, early in the military, uh, the, the middle of your career, middle to end of your career and the beginning of mine. Um, did you, did you, were you able to take advantage of any of the education opportunities? I know that, you know, your guys' workups are intense and obviously deployments is like actual work time. So were you able to take advantage of any of the educational opportunities? Uh, Not while I was in, I mean, okay. You know how you really don't, like I said, your life is really not yours. I mean, especially during war, like, dude, I can't even begin to to tell people how busy we were and like, we were never home, all that stuff, you know, but yeah, school, but I mean, stateside schools, training workups, training schools, this, that, and then deployments when you're putting it all, you know, it's, it's a super bowl. It's game time. There's no, I mean, there's stateside, but you're always traveling and training. Like you don't get your own time. It's just, but afterwards. Yeah. So afterwards uh, I was, I, when I got out, I was able to take advantage of the GI bill. Gosh, what's the name? They, they came out with, an, with like an enhanced GI Bill. For it's combat. the post 9-11. Post 9-11, that's right. So I was able to get 100% of post 9-11, which really helped me through school because 
as I was trying to work and had my own business and trying to get my degree, uh, my, the degree that I, that I majored in was only available at the university, at Arizona State University. I live 45 minutes away, so every day or three times a week or whatever, I have to drive down to Arizona State and take my classes. And, um, and, and so it was, a lot of, it was just a lot of time I spent doing that. But did you was, go to ASU Maine campus or did you go to Satellite West or? No, I went to Maine. Um, okay. I have a degree in physics and physics is a very small, um, it's a very small major. I think I graduated maybe with 25 people. Wow. So they really only offer, and it's not even like they offer, they only offer one class per semester, right? It's not like they offer multiple classes. It's, there's so few people that everybody takes the same classes along the right. way. Right. It's like, here's your, here's your one chance to take this class, either sign up for it or wait till it comes around again. Yeah. So Anyway, the, the point being is that it really, it really helped um, in the early days when I, was, when I wanted to get my degree and I, my, the business was, you know, I was still building the business. I didn't have a lot of money. Um, I, I was able to take advantage of the job and it really, really helped. You know, I had four kids. By that time, by the time that I was, was uh, finally in um, uh, doing my degree full time, I had four kids and a wife who's a stay-at-home mom. And so it really, really helped um, financially. Um, because basically they pay hundred percent of your school and they get, I think I got maybe a thousand bucks a month. It wasn't a ton of money, but I didn't have to pay for my school and it was a little bit of extra cash. Right. right? Cause they pay, they pay you the BAH of a single staff sergeant yes. or something like that, yes. or a single E5. So a PO2. In your, in your location. Right. So in Phoenix, yeah. it's cheap, but if, you, if I would have been like in Hawaii, it would have been triple, but they, yeah. yeah. Story yeah. of our life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was, it was great. I, I really, glad I was able to take advantage of it. I do still have a few, I don't even know if it's eligible anymore, but I have a few credits left if I wanted to go back and get a master's or something. Nice. So you said you were, you were building the business and obviously Graybow came first. Um, So what was starting a small business like in you know, with the four kids, with the, the, with the, the stay at home wife while trying to go to school and build your business in the same industry centered around the same product as your, your family's business. Well, just to be clear, I was still at, I was at that time, I was still uh, working for McMillan and we, my dad and I had started a business called McMillan firearms. And we started that in 2008 Okay. And so that was the business that, that I was in at that time. And we okay. were in the middle of building that. Um, I graduated, uh, I sold the business in, two, well, my dad and I sold the business in 2013. And I graduated in 2014. And so I had kind of pushed those things off my plate when I started Graybo in 2014. I actually technically started Graybo 2014, February, and then graduated in May of 2014. So um, it all kind of, that all kind of happened at the same time and then was able to, able to start Graybo. So, but you know, it's, I was, I was used to being busy. I was used to working hard. It was no, I was no stranger to that. And I missed it a little bit because when I was working at McMillan with my, with my dad, working, you know, at, I own that company. There were times, especially during 2009, 10, 11, where things were really slow. I mean, if you remember the economy basically just crashed. Yep. Um, just things had just were just were slow, and so we didn't have we didn't have a ton of money at that time, and um, you know, so I I found myself a lot of times just bored, um, and so uh, I 
found that there was a couple of times where I tried to start school during the business and I would get through a semester of classes and then the business would pick up so much that I'd have to stop and I'd start and stop. Yep. Uh, but I just decided in 2011, like, I'm like, I'm not getting any younger at that point in time. I was like in my early thirties and I'm like, I've got to do this. And this is something that's on my list to do in my life and I'm going to do it. So in 2011, things slowed down at the business and I just decided I'm just going to do it and I'm going to commit to it. And if I, if I commit fully to this, I can be done in three years and, uh, and, and be done with it. And I did, and I just decided I'm doing it no matter what I do, no matter what happens. Um, I, you know, I, my youngest daughter at that time was, was, she was just born. She was not even one yet. So I had a one-year-old, a three, a five and a seven. And so my wife was, you know, a trooper through that time. She, she did a lot more than she, you know, than, than she normally would because I was just busy with work and school. And, um, but you know, you just put your head down and commit and do it. And that's what I did and was able to get my degree and, and, um, and, and, you know, run a successful business. And at the end of the day, that business, um, you know, we made, we made money on it and it, 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 it was a good, it was a good first business for me to really start to understand how these things work. Um, it wasn't, I really like what I'm doing with Graybow and Reactor right now. I'm glad we ended up moving on from the, the McMillan Firearms Company just because it wasn't, it didn't fit my, over a period of time, I just, it didn't fit my personality anymore or what I really wanted to do. But um, it was a really good opportunity for me to, to get some um, experience under my belt. Awesome. So started McMillan Firearms Company, then you ended up selling that and you started Graybo in 2014. You graduated in 2014 and then you slowly have built that up to be, in my opinion, you know, like definitely a, a dominator in the in the firearms stock industry, um, especially at the price point. Um, I'm on your website right now and you've got a couple of different options for for stocks. I am familiar with the um, the Ridgeback. So one of my friends has um, a Ridgeback and he's let me get behind it and it's really comfortable. Um, I like the the adjustability in the the cheek riser, and then you just came out with the uh, you came out with a Phoenix, did you not? Yep, uh, September. September, right? And one of the gentlemen that I'm on, um, one of our reviewers for Long Range Tactics, is actually running one of those, and he did a really nice write up on it. I haven't been able to get behind one, but. Um, you offer somewhat of both the traditional hunting and somewhat of the tactical stock. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, correct. Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So which one was your first? Was it the outlander? Yeah. So we did the outlander and the renegade that we launched the company with those two products. Um, okay. the renegade. Um, and so those are the first two. Um, and then we did the Ridgeback next. Um, and then the terrain came after that. And, um, you've, we've, I think we've, we've really, you know, when we launched the company with the Outlander and the Renegade, they're more traditional style stocks. 
But as you see with the Ridgeback and the Phoenix, and we're actually launching a stock, a new stock tomorrow. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and you'll, so what you'll, you'll see a unique shift in our design and the way we, way we think about stock making. And so it's been really cool for us, I think, to, uh, to, to go through that as a company to kind of start to really dig into the, the geometry of, of stocks and how they've always been made and how we can make them in the future. And um, to me, that's really exciting. Um, so. So are you, are we going in the, in the, we'll, we'll focus on the, the PRS area. Cause that's my, I wouldn't right. say area of expertise, but that's what I primarily um, shoot. I'd love to hunt, but that's just one more thing on my plate. I don't have time for. Um, right. And the deer are the size of size of really big German shepherds here in Northwest Florida. But do you see a trend of going super heavy with our chassis and our stocks adding as much weight as we can to, do you think we're starting to dial that back a little bit with the start of things like the NRL uh, Hunter series where they actually have put weight restrictions on their rifles? Yeah. I mean, I think with that, I think people are just, they, they just, they, they like these classes. They like different, challenges and obstacles you know if you can if you've got a a match that you can just bring the heaviest gun or whatever you know they i think that the new um that kind of i don't know what they call it whether it's a hunter series prs but i think that's really a really uh, cool opportunity for people to um you know take a kind of a hunting style stock or hunting style rifle and 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 shoot competition with it i just think it's a it's something different than um you know uh, more of a tactical match Right. Walk. Well, even tactical is even uh, in my opinion, from what I've seen is somewhat of a stretch because I mean, walking three steps, dropping a, a 15 pound bag on yeah. a barricade and then dropping a 22 pound rifle on it. I mean, mm-hmm. at that point, you really just got to put the crosshairs on it and, and do a quick trigger press and you're probably going to hit it versus, you know, if we go with these lighter, weight rifles in more of a NRL hunter series um, style match where you've got weight restrictions. You actually have to meet minimum power factors um, mm-hmm. for your bullets. I think, I think it's adding, it's adding back the traditional hunting aspect. And then you got just crazy events like um, the sniper adventure challenge and some of these team matches. And then you've got assassin's way that, uh, Jacob Bynum is putting on in 2022. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting to, to hear from somebody in, in the industry, the direction uh, weight wise, where we're going with, uh, with stocks in the industry. So without, without getting too releasing too many details, are you going, are you going with a lighter weight stock for the one that's coming out tomorrow? Yeah. Um, it's going to be, it's 23 ounces. Oh, oh, it's the lightest stock. One of the light, well, it's definitely the lightest stock any, anywhere close in the price range. I don't know when you air this or whether it's going to be aired tonight or tomorrow. It doesn't really matter because technically we're, we're, we're about an hour or two away from launching the website for the launch. And we've already put stuff up on the website, but are on the, uh, on social media, but it's going to be, it's a very unique design. Um, it's basically, we've, we've looked at a stock and went, what can we remove? What material can we remove and still keep the rigidity and keep the, 
you know, the strength of the stock, but, 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 you know, reduce the weight. And the reason why I say that is because I think one of the, one of the, the things that people are trying to do in the firearms industry is there like the, the, one of the Holy grails is extreme lightweight product, right? So what, you know, with proof and, and their barrels, um, you know, with, uh, you know, defiance making these lightweight titanium actions and stock makers making extremely lightweight carbon fiber stocks. I mean, you're getting super lightweight product now. And so it's a really interesting thing and people are into it. And I think that plays off into, you know, these matches kind of trying to do their best to match that, that, that um, momentum from this lightweight craze that we see. And so uh, we, we see that as well. We know there's kind of like, it's, we call it the race to the bottom and the bottom meaning as low as, as, uh, weight as lightweight as possible. Lightweight as possible. And, um, and there's definitely in the stock, in the stock world, there's a race to the bottom. And so uh, it's not just necessarily how light can you get it, but how, 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 can, I mean, if you're going to sell it for a thousand bucks, well, you got maybe 5% of the population that it can buy it. But if you can sell it for half that, you know, you've got a whole different world that opens up and, and people, you know, start talking about it. So that's kind of our goal. Every, every product that we make, we want to be able to, to be able to most, for most people to be able to afford it in this industry. Um, so, you know, we keep our prices really inexpensive and we do that through in, in, in process innovation, I should say. I don't know if that makes sense to people, but yeah, I mean, cause you got people, product process, uh, as Marcus Limonis says it and you know, your process, if you can streamline your process and eliminate waste, you can reduce your overall cost and provide it to the consumer at a, at a lower rate. That's exactly right. So we spent a lot of time working on our process to be able to bring product to, um, to the consumer at a reasonable price. And so I think we're, we're really kind of, I think we're hitting that. And I think it's, it's, it's touching a nerve at, on some people where we come out with these really cool products that are well-priced. And um, I think it's getting, it's getting some traction. That's awesome. Um, I want to talk about reactor. This boggles my mind and I love it. So I'm sure this tickles your fancy of being a physics major because um, it's definitely more science and technology than I know what to do with. But I'm looking at your, your, your reactor USA.com right now. And mm-hmm. what I understand it to be is it is a small modular that either mounts via Picatinny or M-Lock to your firearm system and it gathers information. And the, and some of the information that it gathers are your shots taken, like so no more, no more need to try and write down, well, I shot five rounds from here and five rounds from there and I cleaned the stage over there. It's just going to count all your shots for the day from that particular firearm. It's going to do your, um, what the barrel temperature is. It's going to gather some atmospherics. It's going to plot your cant, your inclination, your heading, but also like on the day, it's going to tell you, well, you did a 10 round shots at 1015, another five round shots at 1225 and so on and so forth. Um, 
what other cool things or where did this thought process come from? Well, uh, the thought process, you know, started, uh, I actually started the business really, or the, the thought process of the business with a friend of mine from my physics class at ASU. And, um, he had spent a, a lot of time after his degree um, in San Francisco. He's technically a programmer. I mean, he's, he grew up programming, um, coding, uh, but ended up getting his degree in physics because he wanted, he liked that. He wanted to have a, a well-rounded combination, but he spent, I don't know, I think six years in San Francisco area, um, you know, in big tech being a, a programmer. And um, he'd come home every once in a while, we'd talk, and then he eventually got work remotely, uh, even still with this company from San Francisco, but he moved back home to Arizona and we'd chat and we, I just told him, I said, this, you know, these are some things that I think could be used in the firearms industry. And, and at the end of the day, we just started to talk about what was needed versus what we could actually produce. And, and, um, turns out like we felt like we could produce a product that would be useful on a, on a firearm. And so basically what you just described right there, was most of what we had come up with and developed over the last probably two, two and a half years before we launched the, the company and the first product fusion module. And then, uh, you know, uh, to answer your second part of your question, you pretty much hit most everything. The only thing you didn't hit was um, we also uh, track um, um, recoil force. So like basically G force um, uh, uh, recoil profiling and audio profiling. So, um, uh, you, you can basically look at a graph and we'll deliver a graph to you that, that kind of shows you what your recoil and what your, what your audio signatures look like. So it's hard to explain how those are valuable until you continuously see the profiles and the charts over top of each other over time, right? It's one of those things that could right, help. Like you. overlays. Yeah, like overlays that you're able to see consistency and things like that. And so those, that's where you're able to dig in to, to really understand how, you know, your shooting position and those types of things. So on the audio side, um, you said that it record or not records, but it can give you like audio readout. Is that like gauging the decibels of your firearm? So like if I'm running my, you know, six, five Creedmoor with just the break, and then I want to see what it's like with my suppressor on it. It'll tell me the difference in decibels. Is that what yep. it's? Yep. That is the bee's knees. Um, and it is only recorded when you get the, um, the recoil pulse of um, the firearm or does it work when you dry fire too? Like as far as like the tracking, the, the, the movement or I guess it's like an accelerometer in there. Yeah. Um, It'll work when you dry fire as well. Um, because, so one of the bigger challenges that we had developing this was, you know, you go all the way from as small of a recoil as a dry fire, or even let's say a 22, if you want to actually fire something all the way up to like a 338 or a 50 cal or some huge caliber. There's this huge range of recoil force that this accelerometer inside the device takes. And so what you have to do is you have to you have to set parameters of when to count shots and when not to count shots, right? So I don't know if that makes sense or not. But yes, absolutely. when you're counting shots, the shot is basically the central hub for all the data and all the information that you're that's that we're going to deliver. So you've got to count shots accurately. You can't miss shots and you can't not have shots take. 
But the problem is, is the accelerometer is sensitive enough that if you, you hit it with your elbow or you bang it on a table or whatever, that'll count a shot if you don't have the parameter set properly. So after lots of testing and lots of false positives and lots of, like, we ended up having like a little toggle switch that you can set your own, um, you can set your own, uh, uh, parameter basically. Okay. So if you're shooting a 22, when you shoot, we have like a, a scale that says from like zero to 500 G's where your recoil force was. We map the whole thing. And then what you do is you take these little sliders over, then you put them on each side and go, okay, here is where my, um, here's where my 22 shoots and now count everything within that range. And so it does. So every time you that shoot, is so smart. Yeah. Every time you shoot, now it's going to count everything. And if you fit something most likely, or, or, or if you do something that's not a shot, it's not going to take because it's going to have a different force profile. Plus on top of that, we couple the audio and the, and the, um, the force profiling as a, as a kind of a, as a dual way to make sure that a shot is a shot. Yeah. So checks and balances. Yeah. So let's say you take a shot. Well, let's say you take a shot, you set your parameters and then all of a sudden you accidentally hit the butt of the gun on the, on the, on the bench there. And let's just say for instance, that, that recoil uh, force profile is the same is in that region uh, that you've already preset. Well, it, that, in normal situations, that would count as a shot. But the, what we've done is we put a second parameter in there that it also has to match the audio profile too. So it's like an if equation, right? So if this happens and this, then it's a shot. So it has to be within a certain range of your of your um, recoil force profile and your audio to count as a shot. If it doesn't, then it then there's no shot. So that's the way we kind of we kind of enable all these different calibers and all the different forces and all the different sounds to try to really hone it in on that particular customer's um, recoil or, or their, their rifle. That is awesome. I'm just sitting here like with a big old grin. Cause I mean, I, I understand it and I kind of speak the language. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to make any of it work, but I understand it and it makes my mind happy. So yeah. another question that I have is how do I do, can I have gun profiles, right? So I shoot a bunch of different stuff. Right now I shoot a lot of NRL 22 and PRS 22. So if I want to put this on my open class Remex, it's still a 22, but can I select, can I, like in a Kestrel, you build a shooting profile or a uh, a data profile for a particular gun. Can I do that with the fusion model through the app? Yeah. So you, every single rifle can be customized and there's an, really an infinite amount of rifles that you can, that you can log in. So every single time that you want to put a new rifle in, you can literally add that and not just the rifle, but all of its components as separate entities. So oh, for so awesome. The barrel, let's say as you're as you're entering your rifle, you want to specify your barrel, and we'll ask you for that in the in the profile. And you want to specify as who knows, like a proof sendero or something like that. Right. Well, that barrel, uh, maybe a barrel's not a great, maybe a barrel's not well, let's just let's just go with it. That barrel, we're gonna we're gonna count that barrel has its own tracking system, right? 
as that stock has its own tracking system, if you, if you put it in specifically, as that action has its own tracking system. So for instance, if you were to take the gun apart and to reassemble it into another gun, and as long as you, you had those same um, components, it will track those independently of the rifle itself. Is that, I don't know if that's... That yeah, so like I can... Okay, my, the way that my mind is thinking of it, it's like when you go into play Call of Duty and you're building out your gun. Well, I've got the main gun here, but I'm going to put this on it or this on it or this on it. But in the, in the app, you're basically saying, okay, this is the gun. This is the action. This is the barrel. This is the scope. These are the bullets. This is the powder, whatever. And it's not like you're pulling them off and putting them into the storeroom, but it's tracking how many shots I have on that action or on that barrel or on that scope stock whatever it may be or i'm using this type of bullet for these shots and then i change it and it probably is logging that somewhere in the background of the of the app so i guess the yeah so let's just say let's take your action and your barrel your action you can use for basically forever your barrel you have to change out you have the rifle and let's say you go through two thousand rounds your barrel shot out you can you know that because you're tracking it. You can take the barrel off, put a new barrel on. And then now you that, that action that you're using still has the, 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 the shot logs increasing, right? However, right, but the barrel started over. Yeah, right. That's awesome. You can, and it'll obviously track the whole rifle system too. That's the primary tracker. Like what you'll see when we deliver the information is mostly like how many shots this rifle has taken but you can dig into that and, and, and do it by components as well. Okay. And then what, so what does the unit cost? Cause this sounds like it's got so much into it that it's going to cost the price of a, of a, of a chassis, an aluminum chassis these days. So what is this thing retailing for? It's two ninety nine. Oh my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that is awesome. And while you like, while you were saying all this, my mind just kept circling around, like, um, are you familiar with Chris way and rifle craft and all of the, the data collection that he does? Um, I've heard of him, but I don't know him personally. Okay. So his whole shtick is he only shoots paper at a hundred yards for all of his training. And he actually came up with a target and a tracking system that basically says, okay, at a hundred yards, you're shooting the same target, the same point of aim for 12 shots and you break position each time. So it's three shots prone, three shots sitting, three shots kneeling and three shots standing but you go you know prone sitting kneeling standing and you break position each time i think it would be amazing to see that that drill by chris way coupled with the fusion module to see what your recoil impulse was and then you could do this over time and see exactly what MOA shooter you are. So like my craft number air quotations is a 4.8 and that's 
pretty average amongst the nation right now. I think he's got over a thousand, maybe 1500 people have shot this challenge and submitted their targets. And then he on the backside can see all this information. But if you coupled a drill or a skill like that, or you made up your own drill or skill um, like that, and then coupled it with this information or this fusion module that provides you all this information. Cause I mean, It'll, it's going to show you your cant. It's going to show you your heading, your incline. If you've, it's going to show you that, re-pull, uh, that recoil pulse. And then it's basically going to help you take what you're seeing on paper to what you're actually seeing the data say, well, oh, well, my gun's off. No, it looks like you pulled that shot, right? Because you'll be able to tell like if you pull the shot or you jerk the trigger or you've got bad recoil management, the gun is going to move. It's going to be tracked by your fusion module and you'll be able to see it. And you're not going to be able, Oh, well, my gun's off or my zero must've shifted. No, you just broke a bad shot because you got weak fundamentals or whatever the reason was. Right. That's what my mind has been doing this whole time is saying, man, well, I I need to pick one of these up and then couple it with, with some shooting practice, shooting drills, and then see what it looks like over time. I think the reason why I've heard of that name is because I think someone uh, had, had mentioned him to me in the same um, same context. Does he have a company? Was he the gentleman who a couple months ago put something out, like a, a, a challenge out on social media, a, a target challenge? I can't remember the details of it. Yeah, um, that's that's it. That's him. Chris, his name's Chris Way. And well, is there a name? What's the name of his? Uh, I don't know if it's a company or just a social media site, but it's not him. His name. It's got some other. Gun Around the Sun is his Instagram, and then okay. it's Rifle Craft. So Craft with a K, like the macaroni and cheese. Yeah, so that's where I, that's where I heard him. Actually, I think Sean Udley was telling me about him, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, that sounds like... Yeah, Sean would probably know exactly. It was probably Sean, because, yeah, Sean's, Sean's in, into, in tune with a lot of that stuff that's going on. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I just... It, being the more data that we have, I think the less we're able to lie to ourselves. you know, which is going to produce a better, all better overall shooter, whether it be for competition, for work, for law enforcement, for hunting, for, you know, making an ethical shot on an animal. Right. I mean, that's kind of how, well, that's, that's really what we want to accomplish is, is we just want to deliver data to the customer. Like we're not trying to shoot the gun for you. I mean, I know there's systems out there that are like, you know, in the past that have, that have. Hold the gun still, tried. the dot shows up, pull the trigger now. Right. So how do you, I don't know exactly how to categorize that, but we're not interested in that. We're just interested in delivering as much data about the shot. And we think the most interesting time, at least right now to start with is what happens within the few milliseconds around the shot. And that's what we're tracking is what's, what's going on right around the time of the shot or well, a little bit before at the time of the shot and a little bit after the shot and, and see if that information can be useful. I mean, to be honest, um, we don't know exactly what, you know, these, these real, um, uh, the PRS shooters that do this every day, like we're, I'm not a PRS shooter that does this every day. I've shot a lot in my life, but I'm no, I'm not a PRS shooter. We don't know exactly what these, these guys are going to find. All we want to do is we want to deliver information that we think is going to be valuable 
But really where that information is going to come back to us is when people get out there and start shooting and go, hey, this is how I use this piece of data. This is how I use this piece of information. And then we can go, okay, I get it. And we can continue to kind of curate that, that information for the shooter to make it the most streamlined and easy way to uh, deliver information and useful information to the shooter. That's awesome. Um, I want to hit one or two more, one or two more topics real quick, and then we'll, uh, we'll let you get going. Cause I know it's probably getting a little late there and you probably want to have dinner with the family. Like you said, um, veteran outreach. So we've kind of talked about the transition and like getting out and education and everything like that. Um, what veteran veteran outreach what does that kind of like mean to you and not like in a philosophical way, but like, I mean, you were in the teams you did, you were one of the elite combat soldiers. The nation has sailors, sorry, has ever produced. Um, You know, you joined in a time of peace, you ended up going to war, you, you did your time. And now we've, we've still got, you know, individuals that joined at the same time of you that are, that are still out there pushing and jobbing it. And we're coming up on, you know, we 2001. So 20 years of, of doing this now, America's longest war, like what veteran outreach do you think needs to happen? Well, it's hard to, Say, uh, I obviously, I think the biggest, well, it's hard to say what the biggest one is. The most obvious one is the, the veteran suicide issue that we have. That's the most, what people focus on because death is, a, is a, it's, it's, a, it's in your face. We have other issues with veteran unemployment, of course, uh, which is a big deal, but it's not as highly talked about because it's, death is always just a more tragic. Um, I think all these things are, are things that we could do better. You know, I'm not a big proponent of the government. Um, I don't think they do things very well. Correct. So I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I'm just not a, I mean, I think besides a few, like, you know, the military for the most part ran well and a couple of government agencies that, you know, military type organizations are, are ran, are ran relatively well, but for the most part, the government doesn't do things very well, doesn't do things very efficiently. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the one of the best ways to go about it is to you know from the civilian world from the you know from our capitalistic society is we should we should be helping that way um, however we can and there's a lot of people out there that uh, that uh, create um, uh, nonprofits for veterans and I think that's great I don't it's so hard because you see a lot of these nonprofits and a lot of them are big you have um, uh, wounded, you warrior. Know, wounded warrior um, but there's still so many problems. I don't know how to solve the problem, man. And, and that's, a, it's, it's hard because you look at it and you, man, it's such a big issue. Um, how do I make any impact? And um, it's, it's not an easy answer to solve. I recently just started getting involved with um, Mark Lee, which was the first seal killed in Iraq. And his mom has a foundation called the America's Mighty Warriors. Warriors. Yep. And I started recently getting involved with her and, you know, I don't have the answer to it. I'll be honest with you. I just, I just do what I can when I can uh, to, to support the guys as best I can. You know, I wish I had a better answer for you, man. I just don't, it's such a big problem. 
Yeah. I, I mean, that's like asking to solve like government overspending. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, that would be an easier question to actually answer. Yeah. <laughs> Stop spending money. Um, <laughs> as far as the transition goes, like where would, where would you tell a dude that's two to three years out, like from retirement or, you know, he, you know, he signed a six-year contract. He's, you know, he's two years from getting out or a guy that signed a four-year contract. He's, you know, 12 months out. Where would you tell that individual to, where would you tell that person to start that knows, Hey, I am getting out. Where would, where would you tell them to start? It really uh, tell them much different than I would tell a kid coming out of high school. Right. Um, obviously the person getting out of the military has a lot more skill, but it really depends on what you want to do. You have to kind of think of your life after the military. Like even if you've retired, you're still probably, you could be as young as 38 years old. You still have a lot of time left and a lot of ability to, to gain new skills. And so, you know, sometimes the path is to go to college and to be, um, you know, to have some, maybe a corporate job, maybe that's what you want to do. Um, maybe you don't really want to go to college uh, I would say there's a lot of tradesmen out there that um, or trade craft out there that you can, you can become a great tradesman and make good money. And I think a lot of the military jobs um, would transition well to tra- into, into the trades, you know, plumbing, um, electrical, those types of jobs where our society at the moment doesn't really look highly upon those, but they're still needed. And, and um, I just heard a story yesterday where plumbers in New York city, they're, um, paying plumbers six figures because they, they just don't have enough plumbers to, um, to support the population over there. And nobody wants to do it. Everybody's being told you should go to college. Well, you go to college and then, you know, the pipeline for corporate jobs isn't there anymore. So it, like I said, I don't want to get too far down that, but I, I would say it, it depends on what you want to do. You got to think about what you want to do for the rest of your life. You got a long life left ahead of you. And, um, some people know what they want to do. Some people don't. If you don't know what you want to do and you just want to make some money, do not be afraid to go in the trades. You know, look at being a plumber. It's a, it's a dirty job, but guess what? You probably did a lot of dirty stuff in the, in the military. You're used to it and you can make good money doing it. You know, being an electrician, it's a little bit dangerous. Most people shy away from it, but if you went into the military, you're probably not shy about that type of stuff, right? I mean, it, it really fits well, I think, with, um, you know, a military career. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's good advice. I mean, sit there and, you know, think about it and, you know, don't be, I, my opinion is don't be afraid to, to, te- to taste, right. Hey, do I want, you know, to go to school, sign up and take a class while you're still in the military. If your job, if your job and your time frame allows for it, I know I don't like going to school, but I'm forcing myself to do it. I was up till, 1030 last night, finishing my six page paper after I shot my 22 match. Um, it, you know, it is what it is, you know, and you got to do what you got to do to get the, to get the grades. But, you know, I'm a terrible student. Apparently it stems from my ADHD, like officially diagnosed. It happens, (laughs) figures out why I can't pay attention to stuff I'm not interested in, but yeah, I mean, taste stuff, go to school, like, try some trade stuff, like just get out there and, and taste different things in, in the, uh, in the space, you know, be a YouTuber, be an influencer, 
do what I do and literally try 10,000 different things, host a podcast, try your hand at Photoshop. Like I've, that's literally been what I've been doing for like the last two and a half years, basically, since I got down here to Florida is just trying a bunch of different stuff and see, you know, throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. No, um, that's a great, uh, great way to put it. Like I, cause I'm two and a half years. Yeah. Two and a half years from hitting 20. I have no idea, idea what I want to do. I've got no clue. I know I work real hard, both yeah. at work and in my hobbies and I try and do school and I feel like I have a full-time job as soon as I come home to, you know, give the wife a break and try and support her in her small business and try and keep up with all the kids stuff. So like it's, it's taxing, but you gotta, you gotta figure stuff out. Um, and then the last thing I want to touch on is um, we talked a little bit about your family earlier, but what we didn't talk about is how everybody in the fire in the McMillan family seems to be involved in the firearms industry in some way. And like you said, your your grandfather and your father have done the McMillan stocks. You have Graybow and you have Reactor, but you also have a sister, don't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have two sisters, but I think I know which one you're probably talking about. Yeah. I'm okay. So I didn't know you had two sisters. So there we go. Um, but your, your sister's heavily involved in, in charity work inside the firearms industry. And that's through yeah. the guardian long range. And if you, if you listen to my podcast or you're involved in the shooting world, uh, long range shooting world at all, you know what the guardian is. They actually just had a match last weekend in uh, the Carolinas, but basically it's a different shooting format than anything else. You basically, it's basically a one day match. And then the top shooter that finishes on the one day match gets paired up with the person that came in last. So first, then last and second, second to last, and it goes all the way up. Um, it's a really cool format and all of the proceeds go to um, helping uh, children get adopted, correct? Yeah, foster kids. Mm-hmm. Foster kids. So like, how did that, like, and I know if I want to talk to her, I, I brought you on, but it, this is a good segue to, to talk about uh a really important um, topic about, you know, getting kids foster care. How did, how did that, how did that come up? Like how did, how did the McMillan family per se get, get involved with that? Well, I think um, my sister, you know, worked for McMillan, worked for my dad. um, And my guess, and cause I'm, I wasn't there, but my guess how that happened was, um, um, Gary, uh, super nice guy, uh, just looking for sponsorships, um, for his matches and, um, you know, calling our, all the firearms, you know, uh, long range, uh, manufacturers, you know, stocks, scopes, you know, triggers, and they ended up getting a hold of McMillan and, and, um, you know, I think Brittany just took a, a real liking to it because Brittany has, um, a foster child of her own, okay. um, that she'll be adopting soon, but, um, uh, and she's fostered a few other uh, kids 
So I think it just really resonated with her. And I think that uh, for Gary and, and the crew there at the Guardian, I think having someone um, that, you know, Brittany had the time and she had the ability and she had the skill and have someone who actually is actively fostering kids really, I think just, it's a good combination for both for my, for my sister who was really looking for something to really be excited about and to really connect with. And for Gary and his crew who really wanted someone who was authentic and someone who could really speak to, you know, current issues or current things going on in the foster care world. And so they just really hit it off. Um, and she's been traveling all over the place for the last few years. She's gone to their Ireland matches. And, and even to this day, um, she still has a lot to do with them and travels around with them. So I'm really happy for her. I'm happy for the guardian because they got a really good person, but I'm happy for her too, because, um, you know, she really found something she enjoys and, um, that's, that's, that's good. We all, we all are looking for that in life. Yeah. Awesome. I didn't mean to like put you on the spot with that last one, but you know, I just thought it was, thought it was awesome. I mean, everybody, it seems no matter whether it's military service or just giving back in general, I think it's, it's something to be said that the McMillan family is uh, a family of service. So I, I kind of put two and two together there and I think it was worth noting. Thank you. And, uh, so thank you guys. Thank you, McMillan family. Um, is there anything else, uh, last shout out you want to, you want to throw out there, um, before we wrap this up, any, uh, what's your social handles, um, all that. Um, Yeah. So, uh, you know, my uh, Graybow and reactor, of course, are my companies. Um, uh, we're, we're pretty much most active. Graybow is most active on Instagram and that's just the handle is Graybow G R A Y B O E. Um, we do have a Facebook. It's the same thing. G-R-A-Y-B-O-E. Um, Reactor is Reactor USA on Instagram and Reactor USA on Facebook. Um, what I like, though, is I also I have my personal uh, Instagram and LinkedIn accounts that I, I post on. And um, you get a little bit different, like more personal stuff, more I talk about some politics and things I think about the world and stuff outside of just my company profiles, uh, or my company stuff. I can't I don't really post anything personal on my company stuff. But a lot of people do like, you know, I guess when you're going to buy a product from somebody, they like to, I think they like to kind of know who they're buying from. So um, I just decided one day I'm just going to start posting some of my, the things that I think about and care about. And so uh, and I Instagram is, go ahead. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, I th- I, it's spicy and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so my Instagram handle is Ryan underscore M C underscore M I L L A N. And, um, I'm not sure what my LinkedIn, I think it's some jumble of numbers, but if you just, um, if you just uh, search Ryan McMillan, you'll find me, my profile picture is the same on all my platforms. And so, um, those are where I post much. I do have a Facebook page, but I don't do much there. It's, I don't know. I do some stuff there, but anyway, I think that's good enough for my company. And then, um, I guess my question is, do you have a YouTube channel where somebody that, uh, picks up a fusion module can go to learn all the ins and outs, or is those just like on your, your social, if we just click on like, you know, reactor USA, Facebook, and then like click on videos or a bunch of the, the how to's and whatnots on that, or do you have a dedicated YouTube channel? No, we have a dedicated YouTube. Um, and okay. it's under Reactor USA. Okay, uh, awesome. 
we just started it. So it probably doesn't have as many followers. So it probably is not high in the ranking. So you might have to scroll down, but um, if you go on our website and you look at how, you know, our, our logo, um, okay. and just our logo on YouTube is the same in the right place. I'm going to going to reactor USA right now. Boom. It is. Oh, okay. You're like the fourth video down. Okay. We're moving up then because you have uh, seven subscribers. Now you have eight. Because <laughs> I'm going to pick one of these up and I'm definitely going to play with it because I think it's going to be, I think it's going to tell a lot about my shooting and my, and I also want to kind of see how I tra- how well I transition from the 22 stuff that has little to no recoil to some bigger centerfire stuff. I think it would be interesting to, to see how well um, recoil mitigation or recoil uh, impulse handling is between the two systems. All right. Well, every once in a while we have technical difficulties that I'm not smart enough to figure out on the fly. So basically what happened is I didn't set the timer long enough on the Zoom conference call and in an hour and a half it automatically cut it off. So we were pretty much wrapped up. I just didn't get to do my outro so that's fine. One, I would like to thank Ryan for coming on to the show tonight. I greatly appreciated it. It was fun and interesting to have a fellow firearms enthusiast, but a Navy SEAL, entrepreneurial individual like himself come on to the show. It was very nice and interesting to have a conversation with a man of such caliber. So that was super cool. So Ryan, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Um, Once again, I'm your host, Guy DeMarco. You can find me at hotgdrod.com all one word on Instagram, Guy DeMarco on Facebook. My email is guy.demarco.84 at gmail.com. You can follow at another GD podcast on Instagram as well. Follow my YouTube channel uh, at Guy DeMarco and just stay up to date with all the things that are going on. Be sure to check out graybo.com for the new release of the new stock that they have coming out um looks really cool i just went on the website myself and checked it out looks super cool um well priced for a hunting stock and like he said it's 23 26 odd ounces so super light definitely great for a backpack backcountry type of hunting rig Check out reactorusa.com for that fusion module. I will be picking one of these up. I will be testing it. I'm going to shoot 22 and center fire with it. I'm going to shoot the craft challenge with it. Um, I'm just really excited to get my hands on one and check it out. So once again, thank you guys for joining us tonight for another GD podcast. And, you know, if you guys got show ideas or want me to get in contact with somebody and hit them up and get them on the podcast, shoot me a message, let me know, and I'll do my damnedest. So once again, guys, take care. See you later. Be safe. And uh, 
If you can find primers, let me know. All right. Later, guys. Bye.